Abbott. Um, I'm the director of the Centre for the Study of Corruption and Transparency here in Oxford. And um, it's with great pleasure that I welcome Mihai Fazakash here today. Um, as I'm sure anyone working on corruption knows, one of the big problems that we've faced in the last sort of 25 years since we've really seriously been trying to research corruption is measurement uh, and how to measure this um, this thing that people have an incentive to cover up and conceal. Um, so that's been one of the sort of big academic problems in trying to research corruption. And what we've had, of course, for 25 years is the Transparency and the International Corruption Perceptions Index, um, which was a country-level and perceptions-based indicator. Um, was wonderful in that we didn't have any other way of measuring corruption, um, but also limited um, in terms of its use and, and how detailed a view we can get of, of what corruption is actually happening. Um, so, what is very exciting about Mihai's work is that he is pioneering um, research into a new generation of corruption indicators, uh, where he's taking data from public procurement about the contracts and the allocation of government money of course, one of the big sources of corruption um, is public uh, procurement. Um, and he's taking that data and then seeing what we can tell from it in terms of how money is being allocated and where there might be corruption in that process. He's actually won a prize for his work on this. The U4 Anti-Corruption Centre held a competition um, for these new proxy indicators of corruption, um, for which uh, Mihai and his collaborators <coughs> won the first prize. Um, and Mihai also has a very distinguished academic career. His PhD is from Cambridge. He's currently a postdoc at Cambridge. Um, but he's also worked at the Hotel School of Governance and Rand Europe, uh, ENA in yeah. France. So um, many, many distinguished organisations. So um, I will join the audience and look forward very much to hearing what you have to say. Hopefully it won't be boring for you because I updated the, the presentation since we last... Uh, since you last saw it. Okay, so second generation indicators of corruption, uh, as Lee said that. Uh, before I jump into the actual measurement story, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the Corruption Research Center Budapest kind of advertisement story. Uh, and it's not just for advertisement, but also for seeing that you know, indicators can be generated not only in public procurement, but in other areas. So one of the things we are doing is, is looking at quality of legislation in, in a couple of EU countries like Hungary, the UK, and France. And what we do, we look at uh, legislation, take the text of legislation, and see how they are uh, um, passed, what are the, the consultation uh, procedures, what are the, the voting uh, procedures, and then link that back to industry uh, performance. So if a law regu regulates an industry, and if, and if after the enactment of the law, the industry performance starts to uh, much more diverse, so the, the law kind of increases the variance of company performance, then you have a worry that, well, this law is actually targeting some companies against some others. And then this is, this is a, a one of the new things we are, we are looking at <coughs> besides uh, public procurement. Okay, so I will really just focus on one thing instead of going into all the other things we are doing. And before I, I you know, jump into the details, how many of you working, is working with quantitative data? Or, or, yes? Okay, so if I talk about the details of the regressions, that's, that's still interesting for you. Okay, great. Starting point, as, as Liz mentioned already, I mean, we have these perception indicators, widely used, cross-country regressions, some do uh, more uh, regional or sector-specific. But the problem is that they measure perceptions, right? So if you're interested in what people think about corruption, they're perfect, you get what you want. But if you're interested in corruption as it is, as it's happening on the ground, you get something fairly biased. Of course, you can look for experience-based uh, data in surveys, but the problem is that people don't have access to a lot of types of corruption, like the legislative corruption I was mentioning. I mean, really few people actually sit at the table where they make these deals, or public procurement corruption, I mean, you know, building a highway and then getting the contract to your friends, well, it's like, you know, 20 people, 30 people who actually know about this. So asking the general public would result in getting, you know, 
again, something biased, maybe driven by media or just general uh, unhappiness with the governing party. Now, we also have audits and case studies, which are excellent for targeted uh, measurement and, and uh, revealing the underlying mechanisms. But then again, if you're interested in how big problem corruption is in a country, well, you are left with really little, because you just know like five, ten cases, and you've got no idea how representative they are, how extreme they are. So we need new indicators, and then one way to go for these indicators is to look and, and use big data. You know, big data is you know, electronic, quickly generated, on a real-time basis generated, rich evidence of what people and organizations are doing. Um, now, of course, just having a lot of data doesn't make us suddenly all-knowing. You have to understand the context, and you have to get used to a new kind of research uh, approach. You know, in, in survey research, what you do is you, you go out, there's a questionnaire, you, got, you get your data, and then you analyze. Whereas with big data, it's more like a, a back and forth. It's an incremental improvement, because your data is generated on a daily basis, and then you can always link up new data sets to the old, old ones. So it's always like, okay, there's a hypothesis, I can prove it, but I can still go back to the data, get some new data set, link to my original data set, and test it again. So kind of this incremental improvement of indicators, and it's kind of open-ended look at both the data and, and the analysis. <clears throat> so what kind of indicators are we developing? First, we want to do something which is specific. So far, these perception indicators talked about corruption in a country or in a sector. Well, what kind of corruption? What do we really mean by corruption? The number of people involved in it, the money involved, the proportion of people, you know, I mean, you know, the proportion of transactions. A lot of things can happen, and, and corruption can mean different things in different contexts. So what we want is to identify type of corruption, a certain government activity, and clear measures of what is more and what is less. We also want real-time data. So if something happens on the ground, I want it in the database the next day so that I can intervene the day after. So, for example, if an EU-funded project is awarded today and it looks really high corruption risk, I don't want to wait until the, the road is built when, you know, it's like, okay, we can try to get back the money, but it's too late. I want to intervene before. I also, we also want to build indicators which are objective in a sense that they are built on administrative hard data. So, no perceptions, no feelings. They, they represent actions. Now, of course, you know, this can be biased in many different ways, which we can tackle, but the, the heart of it is that it has to relate to actual uh, um, happening on the ground, reality on the ground. And micro-level, I'm not interested in you know, how corrupt the country is. Maybe it's an interesting question, right? But I first want to understand how it happens where corruption takes place. Because really few types of corruption actually take place on a national level. Legislative corruption, maybe. But procurement corruption happens on the contract level, right? You get the contract, you get the money from it, and you hide the money. So this, this is the micro level where what I want to measure. So match measurement with, with the action on the ground. And finally, if I have micro level, I still want to be able to compare over time and across countries. So I want to be able to aggregate and compare, which is challenging if you really focus on micro to go up to a higher level of abstraction. That's uh, not easy. So why public procurement? Of course, it's a lot of money and uh, it's a crucial role in, in capital accumulation, for example. It may indicate broader quality of institutions because it's a complex administrative procedure. So if uh, there are a lot of errors there that you know, might mean that in, in general that organization has low administrative capacity. And also because it's very corrupt, at least uh, according to uh, uh, perception uh, measures. So these bars represent how um, people think how frequent bribery is. The, the red column would be the procurement. So you see across all the regions, the red one except for Foreign Union. So, so all the other regions, the red bar is the highest. So we think, we perceive that uh, uh, public procurement is very corrupt. Now this is also not surprising because what's happening in procurement, it's really easy to target it, right? Because for corruption to be lucrative, you want to get a lot of money to a few people, right? Because it's about uh, restricting access to resources. And procurement is a discretionary spending, a lot of money. So it's really easy to target it. So if you compare it to, for example, corruption in, in welfare spending, I mean, it's really hard to get you know, thousands of, of pensioners to get their money and then direct it to your own account, right? Because it's just difficult to organize. Whereas if you get a single highway contract, you get millions of euros easily. 
So, <clears throat> definition, what we use is institutionalized grand corruption, which is understood as, uh, in public procurement, the regular particularistic allocation and performance of public procurement contracts by bending universalistic rules and principles of good public procurement in order to benefit a group of individuals. Okay, so the key elements are bending prior rules, universalistic rules, and in order, in order to benefit a group of individuals, okay? There are rules prescribing open access. Anyone with reasonable uh, constraints, anyone can bid. But you don't want that, you want to restrict access and get the money to some people who like, whom you like, your friends. So corruption in this story is understood as particularism and restricted access. So Alina, Mungi-Pipidi or Borutstein talk about similar understandings of, of corruption, uh, partiality versus impartiality, particularism versus universalism. This comes from a Viberian uh, tradition. Now, it's not just this particular understanding of corruption which makes our understanding specific, but it's also the fact that we look at institutionalized forms of corruption. So it's not, not occasional bribery here and there, no, it's recurrent, stable, and systemic. This is really important because that's the, we think, the most harmful form of corruption, it's also the easiest to measure, because all the other forms are really hard. And we look at high-level politics, so we think that, you know, petty corruption has a really different logic compared to grand corruption, where you have a lot of money involved, you can involve lawyers, brokers, uh, companies uh, helping you to hide uh, the money flows, Whereas if you have petty corruption, it's just potentially two people doing some interaction. I mean, this is really a different logic in terms of the number of people involved, collective action, your resources, and so on and so forth. So we focus on corruption understood as particularism and restricted access, institutionalized form of corruption, and high-level form of institutional corruption. Really specific, but the measurement will be specific as well. So the data, as Liz already mentioned, the heart of this story is public procurement data, public procurement announcements. So we know call for tenders, contract awards. In some countries, we always have, also have contract completion announcements, so we can know how much the contract actually costs at the end of the story compared to the original value. But all this is much more exciting that we can link it to other data sets. So we link it to company data. First, company data on financial and registry data. Second, on ownership and management. So things like, okay, how profitable those companies uh, which bid in public procurement and say win in suspicious ways. Are they more profitable than the rest? This kind of database linking allow you to test uh, such questions. Or if you look at ownership and uh, link it to political office holders, okay, let's look at companies whose owners or managers are or were politicians or political office holders like bureaucrats. Are they more successful in procurement? Do they have more or less compet competition, less competitors on bids? I mean, in most Eastern European countries, surprise, surprise, what you find, if a company is owned by politicians, they tend to have zero or only one competitors, as opposed to the, the average two, three competitors for the rest of the universe. So this is, you know, suspicious. You don't know if something going on, but if you think about it in a risk-based approach, that's something uh, to be worried about. And finally, we look at the public side, because it's really exciting to know, okay, which municipalities are making more deficit, right? Because that's, that's the side of the story. Procurement is an expensive business. If you are corrupt and incompetent, then it's even more expensive. So you're more likely to make a deficit, and everyone is worried about austerity. So this is the, the kind of questions we want to answer. So this is uh, kind of really extensive uh, data, and it took kind of three years to compile all this data. But the good news is that most of it can, can be done. If, if there, is, there are resources there, it can be done and compiled in most countries. So what we have done is Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia. Uh, we are working on uh, three other uh, transition countries. I mean, this is partially anti-corp work. I mean, I don't know. You have heard about this uh, large-scale EU-funded research project looking at uh, uh, anti-corruption corruption across uh, Europe. Now, there are also some developed countries where we work, especially Italy, and then I started to work on the EU's uh, TED dataset, which is, covers the whole of the EU. We have colleagues working on Russia, and World Bank, this is the latest thing, I just came back two weeks ago from Washington, 
uh, and basically World Bank procurement data covers the whole world and they have tens of thousands of contracts each year and it's a lot of money spent and they have a good data set so the, the approach I will explain later can be replicated uh, basically even in developing countries which themselves don't really have the administrative capacity to generate this data but the developing development uh, or, uh, organizations can. So how this procurement data came by? So some of this came from really just text piled up. This 90s Hungary, but more, more or less around Europe, this was the technology. Someone sat down and wrote down, this company won this amount of money. So this is really hard to get anything structured from this, because it's free text. Now, in the late 90s, early 2000s, most of Europe moved on to something like this. It's still, some parts are just tied up, but it's structured. So there is a database behind it, so like an intranet, kind of, an administrator of a municipality sits in, and enters the name of the winner, enters the address of the winner. So then from this text file with a certain uh, set of computer codes, you get into something like this, a structured database. Now, this has a lot of changes over time because legislation changes, formats change, some follow the old format, so it takes a long time and it's, it's, it's a nightmare even in the UK. I, my first instinct, instinct is that. But you can get here, and that's, that's good news. Uh, so no one is really interested in the programming details, right? Okay. Just stop me if you want. I mean, uh, I'm happy to answer questions. So these are three indicators we already developed. We are working on additional ones. Uh, the first one is more or less uh, follows the logic of red flags. Red flags have been around for like 10, 15 years. Procurement red flags are certain characteristics of the procurement process which people think for one, way, one reason or another that they uh, signal uh, corruption risks, such as not sticking to the deadlines, like to, leaving too short period for bidding, putting in the bids. Now what we do here is we, we take these red flags, we select uh, among those uh, red flags, we select those which, uh, according to our uh, econometric models, uh, those red flags which fit a uh, uh, corrupt rent extraction logic. I will tell you the details in a second. Now the second one is uh, a bit more innovative. It takes, um, tries to identify the political influence on companies' market success. What it does, it treats a change of government as a natural experiment. So say public procurement is truly a market uh, driven by economic factors, then change of government shouldn't affect particular companies' market success. It can affect the structure of the spending, you know, all sorts of spending values, that's fine. But if you control for all these economic factors, and you control for, control for firm characteristics like prior investment, profitability, size, location, then you shouldn't see major deviations after and before the government changes. Now, of course, if you see the deviation, then you start thinking, is it political influence? And finally, this is a, a more uh, uh, standard indicator, it's political control indicator, we call it. So it's direct political control of procurement winners. So that's when a politician owns or a bureaucrat owns a company or manages a company. Okay, so the first one, in, and I'm going to talk about in, in detail each of them. So the first one is the corruption risk index, as I said, links to red flags. It's a continuous indicator between 0 and 1, when 1 means the, means the maximal observed corruption risk, 0 is the minimum. It's a composite of 13 elementary risk indicators, or red flags, as people say. So it's a simple arithmetic average. So it's nothing complicated in composing it, but it's a bit more complicated in selecting them and finding the weights. So what we see, uh, that we do first, is we build on this rich international evidence on red flags. Like, you know, people, Transparency International, the World Bank, the EU, they all came up with plenty of red flags. We selected 30 because 30 we could uh, easily uh, measure uh, on, on the, the database we had. And okay, let's try to select the ones which are relevant. And how do we select them? Uh, yes, how do we select them? We, we run a set of regressions closely aligned with our theoretical definition. So. The, the definition highlighted lack of competition, okay? You get rid of competition and then you uh, allocate contracts to your companies who are linked to you, okay? That was the definition of, of corruption. So what we do here, we look at single bidder contracts where there was no competition and we look at the winner contract share. So if a winner's contract share is high, it means 
a company has won a large proportion of the contracts awarded by a, a, a procuring authority. Okay, so it's the recurrent nature of corruption. Lack of competition and recurrent award to the same company. So what we do here, we take the red flags, all these 30, and we predict these two outcomes. Because we say, okay, if a red flag is related to uh, uh, the kind of corruption understanding we have, then it should be associated with these outcomes. But not just either or, both of them, right? Because the definition had lack of competition, so restricted access, and institutionalized, a recurrent institutionalized corruption. So we came down to these 30 uh, uh, red flags or um, elementary corruption indicators from the 30. Because these are the 13 which are significant and sizable, so large predictors of these outcomes. Okay, and then what is interesting here that we control for the large of a lot of other things. Because what we want, don't want in the corruption risk index is that it's some kind of market specificity. Okay, some markets might be quicker, so the deadlines are shorter. Some markets are more complex, so the descriptions are always really convoluted. Uh, we also want to get rid of uh, procuring authority capacity problems, because a lot of, a lot of the times, public procurement goes wrong because you know, it's a school trying to renovate itself, and then you know, they do procurement once every 10 years, and they always screw it up. I mean, this is what you don't want to show up in the data. So what we do, we, we include a, a range of uh, control factors, and we also include, uh, exclude, sorry, exclude those procuring authorities which don't procure at least three contracts per year. Okay, so we require some kind of minimum uh, capacity. And what you also want to do, want to control for, is that there is sufficient able bidders on the market. Okay, because if there is only one company which can deliver, uh, I don't know, high-performance fighter jets, well, of course, we will get a single bidder, and of course, we will get the recurrent contract award. And that's not, maybe it's corruption, I don't know, but, you know, that's not obviously corruption. So what we do, we only look at markets where there were uh, at least um, four different companies winning in, in uh, four years. But then we have robustness checks with, you know, even chopping the, all the markets without at least 100 competitors. So basically, we look at competitive markets. And the kind of red flags we look at is, for example, uh, the, the change in contract value. So this is the distribution of contracts in Hungary according to the ratio of the final contract value to the original uh, awarded contract value. You see the, uh, the, the zero is, it means that well, it was the same, so what we uh, contracted is what was planned. But then there are, it's just like 4 or 5% of the whole universe, there are these which are significantly higher, some are even 4 times more expensive than originally contracted. This is the kind of red flag which, on its own, we don't think it signals corruption. But associated with these uh, market outcomes, single bidder and, and uh, high mar uh, market share of the winner company, then that's uh, cause for concern. Uh, okay, and then finally we get to the weights in the composite. So the stronger predictors get higher weight, and in the end we ignore it to the zero one then, so that you can understand it as a probability. Zero one, it has a show you in a second, it has uh, approximately normal distribution, so you can think about it as a probability of corruption to occur. So, 0 to 1, well, uh, if you projection as 1, because this is already a regression per winning company. Okay? So, this would mean that there are about 120 companies with score 0.2. So, this is their distribution according to their average score in a four-year period. Now what you see here is that it looks kind of normal, but then there are these guys here on the right. They have much higher score than the rest, kind of long tail to the right, and this means that these winning companies always win, or almost always win, with high incidence of these red flags. Okay, and then this is how we look at, you know, it's really crucial to understand that red flags, you know, been around but we always look at individual ones here and there. But this is different. We look at profiles of actors over time, and we also build together a range of red flags. So if you see a company which recurrently does for years suspicious things, much more than the rest, then this is something you have more confidence that this signals corruption. Uh, any questions? Okay.
I go on. So the, the second one is the political influence indicator. As I said, this is the kind of natural experiment logic. The government changes, let's see what happens with companies. This is in, in, interpreted on the, on the level of companies. One would mean that the company's market share is like changed by the government change. Zero would mean that it's, it's kind of stable. So what we do here, we learn first baseline regressions. So we want, what you want to understand is understanding contract uh, uh, volume, also the market share of each winning company, before and after the, the government. Now, you, as I said, you control for typical economic uh, factors explaining market success, profitability, prior investment, size, location, so on and so forth. Now, you will have some companies which win much more or much less than the prediction, right? They will deviate. And these are the companies who are suspicious for us because we took into account all the standard economic factors and still their performance is surprising. Now, this is first indication, but that's just the first set of uh, uh, regressions. And you run benchmarks because maybe just some companies are old. So you do the same regressions, but for a period where there was no government change. And if the same companies behave normally, then say, okay, they were normal when the government was in power, the government changes suddenly abnormal. And then you say, okay, there is something suspicious about the characteristic of these companies. Of course, we have other validity tests for this. Uh, I will show you that later. Is it clear? So this is, again, results <coughs> from Hungary, 2009 and 12. This is the full procurement market. And the green line, uh, the green bar, sorry, would be the, the surprise holders. So are significantly been less than they should have been if, if there was no government change. And the surprise winners on the orange or red bar who are winning much more. And you see 2010, May, there was an election year. These guys all combined, all together, they, they accounted for 60% of the market. Well, if you go down to 2012, the market share uh, dropped to half. What's more interesting is that there are those surprise winners who had basically nothing, like 5% even less, and then they increased to 50%. Now, just to give you a funny story, one of these companies are owned by the father of the prime minister's sister's husband. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What is it, son-in-law? Whatever. Thing is linked to the prime minister. And he owned 10,000 euros uh, in 2010, according to his uh, asset declaration. And today, he's the 88th richest man of Hungary. And this is solely coming from his company. I don't know this out of asset declaration, and probably he, he lied in the asset declaration. But this is already, you know, interesting. So the final story is uh, direct political connections. Again, it's you know, marking companies. That's not uh, surprising, not so exciting. Theoretically, what is more difficult is actually doing it. So for the, the company winners in procurement, the company registry is there. It's all right, you get the owners and managers. Now for the political losses holders, you have to get the data from electoral registry or you know, treasury records of top bureaucrats for non-elected ones. And then you have to match them. Now the matching is a difficult thing because matching just on name no, it might not be right, depending on the distribution of which names are typical. So what we did in Hungary, we looked at biographical data, we collected date of birth, um, location of birth, and similar data, and matched on that. But not everyone puts up the data, and of course I suspect that those who want to hide, they have something to hide, they won't put up their birth date on the net, right? So what you have to do, you do like a statistical matching based on name frequency and geographical uh, distance between the organizations. So if I am John Smith, and I'm a mayor of a small town, and I also own a company under the name John Smith, which is registered in the same town, but the likelihood of this John Smith actually being the same person is much higher than compared to that, that, that uh, company being registered in another part of the country. Again, it's probability, probabilistic matching. I wouldn't go to court with this data, but for scientific reasons uh, uh, or goals, it's, it's good enough. Okay, so indicator validity, right? I mean. We believe that indicator validity comes from the cl clarity of the concept and clarity of the measurement, so it's kind of internal. But of course, I want to convince people who don't believe me, so uh, 
let's see kind of external or other ways of validating the indicators. The first one is that we have three corruption risk indicators from corruption indicators coming from different angles, but in the end measuring the same thing, institutions and corruption. So let's see they, if they, they tell more or less the same story. And this is what, exactly what we find. So here we have the companies with no political connection. Here we have the companies of political, with political connections. And these two groups average CRI score. You see that those with, uh, higher, uh, uh, those with political connection, they have higher CRI score. So more red flags for your competitors, shorter deadlines, so on and so forth. There is a, it's a significant difference, we are all happy. It's not a large difference, which tells me two things. One is that not necessarily every political connection is corrupt. Just because a politician or a top bureaucrat owns a company, it happens to be a public procurement contract, doesn't mean that it's necessarily corrupt. Second, it really makes sense to measure institutional grant corruption from different angles. Because maybe this difference would be higher if I had more red flags. I could measure much more of these suspicious characteristics. So it's good to have two, two indicators. So this replicates the same table, but now it's not political connection, but the bars from the previous graph. So the surprise winners, surprise losers, uh, all put together in category one, and category zero, those who perform in spite of government change. So those who don't change, surprisingly. And you see again, CRI is higher here than here. This is again not huge, and then the problem is, and I'll get back to this later, it's one major limitation, we look at companies, that's one of the key uh, unit of analysis, and also public organization. But of course, ownership groups, ownership changes uh, can be really dynamic. So actually what you would like to look at in an ideal world, ownership groups rather than individual companies. We have some of the data on ownership to build up these groups, but it's, it's really difficult technically. So in, uh, indicator validity, number two, Okay, the three indicators vary, co-vary, how do you like them? That's great, but maybe we made the same error three times, right? The same logic, same data, so you cannot trust us. So let's look for additional indicators which we could use for validating the, the corruption uh, indicators, but from outside of this universe. So what we think is that if uh, our in indicators of institutions grant corruption actually indicate corruption, that rent extraction must go on. Right? Because so far, I only focused on uh, selection of companies, who wins how much. But I didn't really focus on money, that who, who earns how much profit, who earns how much, uh, which contract is more expensive. Right? I didn't focus on this because it's hard, but there are some indications. So the first thing is, we chop up companies according to their average profit margin. And you see, as you have higher profit margin companies, they have higher CRI scores, so more red flags. Well, they're making a lot of money. But where does the money come from? And this is the second story. This is the universe code of all the contracts in Hungary 2009-12. Here you have a ratio, which is the contract value, divided by the estimated contract value. We call this relative contract value because if there is healthy competition, bids tend to go under the original estimate. So how it works, estimate is put out in the call for tender, and that orientates bidders. And if you know, companies think, oh, it's tough competition, I go under, that's price competition. But there is no competition, then they go on it or even higher. Um, so that's why it's an indication of how pricey a contract is. Okay? That's the, the horizontal axis. The vertical axis is the CRI score of each and every tender. But you see the red line is a positive relationship more suspicious characteristics, more expensive. So maybe this is where the money comes from. So we, we have a suspicion that there is more money in the more corrupt firms. We have a suspicion that the money comes from public procurement, at least partially, where the money goes. And that's uh, looking at where the companies are registered. And what we did here, we looked at tax havens, which are you know, associated with money laundering and diversion of funds and all sorts of risks. So, what you see here is companies registered in uh, non-tax havens, so the financial secrecy index of the country is uh, fairly low, and then here are the companies which are registered in tax havens like Cayman Islands. Again, their CRI score is higher. So there is a story here. They get money, potentially from procurement, they earn high profits, and they try to hide it. I'm not saying it exactly works like this, but this validity test gives you this, this impression. So limitations, 
I said all nice, well not all nice. This is a general indicator of corruption, no. This is something specific. Can you uh, compare countries? You can compare countries, but say maybe the Denmark is excellently low on this. It can still be awfully bad in some other aspect of corruption, you know? So uh, this is just a specific measure of corruption. This is really important. Reflexivity, if, say, the World Bank implements this measurement and starts to you know, actually do risk-based audits based on these scores, well, companies will surely react, okay? Because they will, they will know that, oh, that's the new rule of the game. So what you have to do, the, the regulator would have to, you know, uh, adjust the measurement, get more yeah, transparency, more data, so that, you know, that kind of cat and mice game can, can you know, kick in. Okay, and then the final one, it's a really important limitation. Uh, so far, we only focused on lack of competition in an upper end and really blunt way. Single will be there, one company putting in a valid bid. But there is, of course, bid rigging. I mean, plenty of stories like, I think it was uh, 160 companies uh, orchestrated over several years in Sicily by the mafia for bidding procurement. So they, they wrote all the bids centrally and then the companies just put them in. So basically we completely missed that. This is a major limitation. But we have a response to that and then this is what Liz hasn't seen yet and uh, this is a really exciting new uh, research avenue. Ooh, I'm getting really long. Uh, we can do a lot of things with this. As I said, you can compare countries. Uh, these are months between 2009 January and 2012 December. Three countries, Hungary, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia. So this is the average contract awarded in a month in each of these countries. Okay, you can you know, compare countries in many different ways, but let's test kind of a rough estimate of how, how typical corruption is in a country. Now, some of you might have heard of things going awfully wrong in Hungary. I mean, this is here in the data. It's kind of some positive trends, puff, there is a break in it, jump up, and then even since then it's going up slightly. So it's good that it shows up. It doesn't show up in the, in the World Bank governance indicators because they just, you know, we don't know why not. Can you, you can do another thing, look at EU funding. What we did here is say, let's compare similar projects which are identical, more or less identical, in every respect except for their funding source. Because there's theoretical reasons to think that, well, if kind of free money comes in the country, that's up for grabs. So we would expect corruption risk to be higher in EU-funded projects versus national-funded projects, if they are identical. So what we did here is we did the same in three different countries, compared projects, selected only those which are similar, so highway, school reconstruction, school reconstruction, and compared compare their CRI scores. What you see here is the difference is not massive but still higher in Hungary as well as in Czech Republic. So EU-funded projects are higher corruption risk than the comparable uh, national funding. Now the story is the opposite in Slovakia, but still the overall corruption situation is really different. It's much more uh, corrupt than the two others. And this is in spite of all the monitoring going on, all the uh, additional appeal court opportunities. Uh, it's, it's bad news for Europe. And then this is just, you know, this is a composite score, this CRI, but you can still decompose it. And the exciting thing is that you can see which elements drive it. And this is what we did here. We compared uh, EU funding and not EU funded projects. So, you know, what's happening behind these bars. And then the pluses mean that the EU funding projects have more of that red flag. The minus means the EU funded projects have less of that red flag. So a lot of pluses mean, oh, these are the aspects, EU funded projects, comparable EU funded projects underperform compared to national ones. And immediately what you see, uh, that the, all the market outcome related ones, so single bidder, winner contract share, this is much, much better worse in, in EU funded projects. Maybe it's because it's much over-regulated, so companies don't bid, or maybe it's easier to capture it. Uh, I don't know. And another story is that we have more indicators for Hungary and all those aspects which are not that easy to monitor and not that easy to intervene, those look much worse as well. So for example, contract modifications are much more frequent um, or, or eligibility criteria tends to be much more convoluted or much more frequent to use um, non-price related evaluation criteria. 
So a lot of stories behind it, I think. You just don't have time to look at it. So the third one is, which I promised, it's state capture. Now, the story of state capture is that there's a lot of theoretical uh, writings about it, but really nailing it down empirically what it is, that's hard. So what we, what we need here is, okay, let's think about state capture as a particular distribution of corruption. Because corruption can be distributed in a random way. Some, you know, private actors here, some there, they do their own business. But state capture is something more than just a lot of corruption. It's a particular form of clustered corruption, okay? State capture happens when a public organization loses its autonomy to act. And when does it lose it? Uh, its autonomy, when all of its uh, uh, procuring activity is done in a corrupt way. So there is no, no escape, absolutely no way out. So what we did here, we depicted the, the Hungarian uh, uh, contracting network of public agencies and winning contractors. So each dot would represent either a public or a private organization. The red and, and, and the black ones uh, basically mean now, these are the ones which we uh, labeled as captured ones. Captured because they not only have average high CRI score, but they have low standard deviation around that. So they not only look really corrupt, they always do that. Because, you know, you can achieve a high corruption risk score just by having one bad, you know, slip of a tongue. I mean, you get it from once, but the rest is clean. But no, these are only the organizations which always do high corruption risk contracts. The black ones who always do blah, 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 and the red ones they have one okay contract. So, each dot is an organization, each time is a contract between them. What you see here, all these highly corrupt organizations are tightly uh, linked to each other. You have a periphery, a few, which I kind of sold. So hang on, they're linked in terms of they have contracts with each other? Yeah, yeah, with each other, yes. And the bigger ones means spending more money, the smaller one means spending less money. Now, the, the story is continuing because this is the socialist government in Hungary, which was famous of its internal fights and it was a coalition government and then changed prime minister a couple of times. So it was, we think, the, the captor group had a more decentralized structure. Now, we all know that the, the current Fidesz government is centered around the Prime Minister and the three or four of his friends, so it's really centralized. And this is the same network, exactly the same setup, but for the, the, the Fidesz, the conservative government. And you see here, in the center, it's centralized. Okay, and just one more time. Uh, yeah, so you see, they have sub-centers here, 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 not centralized. They will move in the middle. Now, of course, I'm cheating a bit because Fidesz also restructured the public sector, so which means that spending itself became more centralized. So it, we don't know whether it's the elite structure which matters or the state structure or both. But what we really see here is that what we suspect that corruption is centralized is actually shows up in, in a network graph like this. Now, the bad news is actually of both graphs, even if you have the magic magical wound and then you could clean up, say, 10 organizations, you cannot take out 10 organizations from this network uh, without it staying intact. So even if you take out 10, the whole network stays connected. And this is the story of you know, zero success in incremental policy change. Because you clean up one and the other one uh, you know, gets back. Nothing changes. This is why you feel frustrated and this is why Bo Rothstein is talking about Big Bang approach to anti-corruption. The only way to get rid of systematic institutional corruption is, a, is like, you know, completely new, new uh, uh, yeah, start. Uh, yeah, I'm getting too long. Okay, I jump over civil service pay because what you can do, we can look at how much bureaucrats get and then uh, how it influences corruption scores. Now, this is the new thing, which is exciting. This is looking at public procurement cartels, right? Because I told you that we were really naive in the beginning uh, about what uh, lack of competition means. You only look at single leader. Now, what if they orchestrate uh, competition, pretend uh, competition? So what we did, we identified markets based on product category and region. This is southern uh, Hungary, southern Hungary region, and road and pipes and railways construction. Okay? These are 
actually three or four different regions in Hungary. Sorry, so four different regions of the same category. Uh, this one looks at the, max, the, the market share of the company with highest market share, and this one looks at the so-called uh, hirschmann herfindahl index, which measures market concentration. And these are the years between 2005 and 10. But you see here, there is one market, which is the green one, uh, which is the southern Hungarian, sorry, so the southern Hungarian market, which seems to jump up, whereas all the others are just fluctuating around. This is suspicious. So what you look at, we look at this relative contract price again. You remember, actual contract price divided by estimated contract price, which we take as a broad proxy for how pricey the contracts were. And that's what you see, prices go up, market concentration goes up, uh, prices go up, suspicious, but we don't know, this is just on the market level. And so what we do here, we compare 2007 with 2009, so the start of the disaster with the peak of the disaster. Let's see if the bidding patterns support a cartel logic. So this is the benchmark, 2007. Now this is a different uh, network compared to the previous one. On this network, each dot represents a bidding firm, a company, private company. And each tie represents a tender again. So if two companies bid together on the same tender, they have a tie between them. The large ones uh, mean that they won a lot. The small ones mean that they, actually the smallest one mean that they never won at all. You see here, this is a healthy market. A lot of companies bidding together, really dense, some bidding more, some fewer times, some maybe never, but still, it seems to be a healthy competition, right? This is what you want to see if you are uh, procuring, because then you know, they will bid, they, they, you know, not always the same company bidding. So this was the benchmark, which thing, when things looked fine in here. Now compare this to 2009, which things looked really ugly. And this is what you get, and this is really important. The green ones are the so-called cut points. I don't know how much you know network theory, but cut points are ones which, if you remove them, the network disintegrates into two. So what this means is that these big green ones have a ring of bidders who always lose and only bid with him. He'll, he wins a lot, and then he has this ring of, of winning only with him. Now, the suspicious is, are these guys putting in uh, losing bids, right? Now, if they were putting in losing bids, they would have to be rewarded. So what we did, uh, I didn't bring the table. So what we did, uh, we looked at uh, subcontracting probability of these companies. They are four times more likely to subcontract than the rest of the network. We looked at prices, they are two times more likely to go over estimated value than, than the rest of the network. So there is money, and there is a potential way of, of distributing the, the spoils. Now again, this is a probabilistic approach, I wouldn't rush to court with this, but if I was an auditor, I would try to see those contracts. And the good thing of this approach is that if someone wants a list of these 20 contracts of these companies, I can give it right away. And then how this leads, links back to the limitation of my approach, that this is a way forward, because we can link red flags to these cut points. So if red flags are higher for these guys, for these tenders, it means that the cartel is actually supported by the public sector, by someone in the political elite. We have a lot of evidence, in, uh, qualitative evidence for, for these things. Yes? This isn't the only model of a cartel work. If you go back to your previous slide, mm -hmm. um, this one, oh, oh, this one. Mm -hmm. um, even the one that looks reasonably well distributed yeah, this one. Um, could actually be a model of a cartel. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, in Japan, um, a standard um, construction cartel would look like that. And they take happens, turns, right? They take turns. Exactly. And so, profitability is higher, mm -hmm. and they subcontract and so what happens is that no one would stand out the way that they do in your second slide. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that no one bids the proper price, which means yeah, yeah, yeah. the profitability of the group is higher. Which means that I wouldn't necessarily characterize that as healthy in and of itself, just because people mm -hmm. win, um, win a certain proportion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have an indicator for that. I just, you know, 
picked random examples. So basically, when cartel members imitate competition exactly how you, how you described that they take turns, <clears throat> what you see that is that their winning chances follow a part particular pattern, right? We are five, so you win the first one, I win the fifth one, and the tenth one, you know? Not necessarily. I mean, sorry. So, so, in, in this, fact, yeah, okay. The, there are rules about who is higher up within the hierarchy, <clears throat> and some people will win. Oh, more frequently. And then some people only win one in five and so on. So there, there, there can be disruptive patterns even within... It's not always... It's not always the same, but what I'm saying is that it's a fixed pattern, as opposed to a competition where there's a probabilistic pattern. So what you can do, and we have an indicator on this as well, you compare the winning chances over many contracts and you see, oh, if there is a kind of fixed pattern or just a random fluctuation. And exactly... I was characterizing this as a healthy market, but you're right, it might be that they take turns. I don't know. But it's definitely really relevant. Yeah. Okay, I'm finishing. So what is available in the UK, so what can be done in the UK, is that there is procurement data, but the problem is that most of the good quality data, so rich and structured, easy to harness, is, is coming uh, through the EU regulations. So it's the... Um, EU standards electronic daily, so everything below that threshold is kind of patchy. Some uh, localities put it up on the net, some don't. There are like regional uh, sites, so that's difficult to collect, but possible. And that threshold is? Hmm? And how much is that threshold? 100,000 euro. It depends on the year and the type of uh, contract, but about 100,000. <clears throat> But the other side of the story, the, the company and, and, and political office holder data, that's, that's excellent in the UK. I mean, all these things are downloadable and then there is a open corporates and there is also, uh, you know, even top level bureaucrats are on the, on the net so you can get them. So using these uh, two things might be really exciting. So revolving door is definitely something to look at because you can have the winners of the big contracts and, and you can link it to political office holdership. And another thing is you can look at large contracts again and then whether there are uh, bidding rigs. So there are like qualitative stories of you know big big four companies basically taking turns. We don't know if it's true, but you know, look you can look at this. And the local corruption I, I, I uh, put it up here because there is uh, there are papers from Sweden and Denmark which we generally think as the golden standard in anti-corruption, and then they say, well, there is political influence going on in contracting. So it's not outright competition, that, well, corruption that I just, you know, bribe you, but kind of influence trading and then companies linked to the one side of the political spectrum more likely to win than the others. So if it happens in Denmark and Sweden, maybe it's the story in the UK as well. And then I'm sure this can tell many more stories than me what's about what's happening in the UK. So if we can find data on some localities, some regions where uh, there is good data, that can, that can be done and then that would be exciting. Yes, that's it. Excellent, thank you very much. Um